I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And we've got a great guest for you this week. Of course, we say that a lot of times. Uh, yeah, but this time we really mean it. It's not like all those really crummy guests we've been having the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this one, uh, not only are, would I would, you know, from talking with you off air, I would say that he's probably our personal favorite guest. Uh, the man's a genius. Yeah. The man's a, a real intellect and a wonderful Christian brother, yeah. someone we recommend everybody listen to. Highly recommend. And we're going to present him to you. Again, he is our first guest to reappear in our show since uh, we've gone over to our new daily format mm-hmm. at WNO back at the 1st of June. Yeah. So after six months, we're uh, bringing him back for a return visit. Mm-hmm. William Grigg, the author of the Pro Libertati blog. And uh, we're going to yeah. discuss with him uh, a similar topic to what we talked about with Robert Hyde a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. a reassessment of the evangelical worldview and duties to society and the state. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, something for us all to think about in line before we vote in the voting booth. Before we hit the and we've got a gentleman who's going to be one of our best advisors, I think, for mm-hmm. Christians to truly mm-hmm. think what it means to be free and what our duties are, and mm-hmm. uh, at least what we can cover in a week's worth of interview. You're yeah. going to hear it here, and you're going to be really blessed by yeah. it. And I guess we Great ought to, speaker. We ought to head over to him. Let's just go. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, here's William Gregg, and we'll be right back to follow up on Future Quake. This is Dr. Future of the Future Quake Show. With Tom Bionic. Yes, and yeah. uh, we have, returning with us, our first return guest since we went on our new format on WENO. Yes. At the beginning of June uh, 2008, so at almost our half-year point, we mm-hmm. invite back our first repeat guest, Mr. William Grigg, the author of one of the greatest blogs in the whole world, maybe the greatest, <laughs> Pro Libertate. Yeah. And we're going to talk about, uh, a, I guess you could say a part two or a second version of mm-hmm. what we talked about with our another, other dear intellectual friend here on the show, Robert Hyde. Yeah. And that is a reassessment of the evangelical worldview and duties to society and the state. Mm-hmm. We thought this might be a somewhat uh, topical uh, kind of thing to talk about Very a few weeks before of the election, the yeah, election itself. And this is something you all listeners really need to stop and meditate on and think about mm-hmm. what you're going to hear uh, over the next 90 minutes. And Mr. Grigg, uh, I just want to tell you that your prior inaugural appearance on the Future Quake show was just deemed an, a, an instant classic everybody, by our listeners. Everybody liked it. Yeah. People Wonderful. who were not aware, we've, we performed an invaluable service to many of our listeners who were not familiar with you. And uh, we have wanted you back uh, to be the first return visitor. And uh, during this interview, uh, we're going to be asking you some foundational questions regarding uh, current evangelical worldview and its scriptural, scriptural underpinnings, which is something I think you would enjoy talking about. And I certainly know you have something very relevant to share with us. But we're going to use some of the same questions in case our listeners feel a little sense of deja vu. Mm-hmm. Some of the same questions we recently asked of Robert Hyde, uh, another person that uh, a Christian libertarian intellectual that uh, is a favorite of our show. 
And between both of you gentlemen, I think uh, our listeners are going to get a, a holistic, clear picture of the the perspectives they really need to think about before they walk into the booth and make their decisions. So to start our discussions here, uh, for some of our new listeners, in which we've picked up a large number since we went on the air just about the time you came on our show uh, with our new audience, could you briefly describe your background and credentials, uh, education, profession background, other activities, that kind of thing? Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be with you once again. It's a real pleasure, and it's an honor to be with you. Well, it's a privilege yeah. for you. For, we, for we, us we feel to have lucky. You. The pl- right. privilege is ours. Well, you're very kind. I think the most important thing to say is that I'm a Christian libertarian in the sense that libertarian describes my politics, but my most important way of defining myself, my relationship with the world, is the fact that I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he owns me. He has the pink slip on me, body and soul. And so that informs everything I do with respect to politics or any other really important consideration. I've been a Christian believer of what you'd have to describe as a born-again variety for a little more than two and a half decades. I can tell you the day that I had my salvation experience, it was October 11th of 1983, and I was in Guatemala at the time as a Mormon missionary of all the unlikely things. And from that fact, of course, follows quite logically that I was born and raised in an LDS or Mormon home. Actually, I was adopted into the Mormon home and raised from the time I was six weeks old by a wonderful pair of of LDS uh, believers. My mother and father believe in the LDS church. They are five-generation Mormons. They are understandably distraught over the fact that I'm no longer part of the Mormon church. Sure. Mm-hmm. Our family left the Mormon church a number of years ago. And that's occasioned some pain, some misunderstandings, and some hard feelings between our respective families. Mm-hmm. But they're wonderful, unselfish people. They adopted six children, of whom I was one. The first job of any consequence I had after college was with the National Right to Life Committee as an adopted child in the family of six adopted children. I think my motivations on that front are pretty clear and self-evident. Mm-hmm. My academic background is in political science. I flirted briefly with the idea of going to law school, decided that there were better things to which I could devote my time, and I've been a professional journalist, or a semi-professional journalist, if you will, for about 21 years now. I'm 45 years old. I live here in western Idaho with my lovely wife, Corinne, and our five beautiful children, the oldest of whom is 11. Uh, got married a little bit later in life than I had planned, and so we made up for some lost time by having our children rather closely together. And we've been here since 2005. My parents live across the Snake River in a little town in eastern Oregon. And my wife's family lives in Elko, Nevada. And it's a lot more accessible here than where we had previously lived, which was in the Midwest in Appleton, Wisconsin. And Hmm. I've been, as I mentioned, a writer professionally of one kind or another for about 21 years. And prior to that, I actually was a full-time professional musician. I played guitar in a number of touring bands, and also I was a session musician. I did a lot of recordings for television shows and film strips. And back when they had film strips, that dates me somewhat. Uh, videos and <laughs> albums and things of that sort. Exactly. I was trying to be nostalgic with you there. That wasn't your That's part to add the beep, was it? <laughs> hey, hey, were there any no. any groups of note that that uh, we might know or our listeners that you toured with? Some I performed with. I believe you'd probably be familiar with Roddy Millsap. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah, I, I was with a group that opened for him twice. I, as a session musician, ended up 
doing a number of one-off projects with a number of notable people, uh, including, I'm trying to remember his name, Roger Williams. That's a name that might strike mm-hmm. you as a blast yeah. from the past. Roger right. Williams is the noted piano player who did the soundtrack for Born Free. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere in time, a number of things. I actually, right after getting back from my Mormon mission, I mean, within about a week or so, found myself sitting in a rehearsal with Roger Williams with a larger, rather large and formidable book of music that I had learned in a couple of hours to play a performance with him that evening. Wow. So that, that's my background before, before I went into politics. But once again, I want to make a, a point of italicizing here the fact that the common through line in this whole story is the fact that at some point when I was 20 years old, for whatever inscrutable reason, God decided to change my heart. And I was living in a in a religion that was highly legalistic and entirely man-made. Mm-hmm. And I came to realize that only after a long and rather torturous period of decades that in order to be true to the God who'd impressed himself on my heart and made me his, I had to leave that faith and become a believer in Christ alone, in redemption through Christ alone, and to remove any kind of artificial mediator that had insinuated itself between me and the God who owned me. And that's why when I was 40 years old, after a number of years of real melodrama, uh, my wife and I and our then three children, uh, actually I believe it was four children at the time, uh, left the, the LDS church. And that had some personal ramifications, and I believe that it's had some professional, professional ramifications as well. Mm-hmm. I don't regret it for an instant, however, because there's nothing in this world, however wonderful, lustrous, or extravagant, that can compare with the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. Amen, brother. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Well, you know, I don't think the uh, Department of Homeland Security would have been disappointed with the breadth of your coverage there. <laughs> Uh, the only thing I'd recommend for your career is that maybe if you could just take a few more English classes and try to expand your vocabulary yeah, really, range a little yeah, bit. Really. I'm and, trying to do that all the time. And any, anybody who's a regular of your blog has to laugh on that one because uh, yeah. we're talking to one of the most eloquent writers and speakers that I've ever met. In fact, I want to let you know... Uh, uh, Mr. Greg, that uh, when Dr. Future is elected president, that I plan to use you not only as my speech writer, but also as the uh, blog laureate. Uh, blogger laureate. <laughs> They'll have a blogger laureate by that time. Yeah. That would be, yeah. be quite a wonderful promotion. I'm going to move Mish over to Secretary of the Treasury, right, shortly before was, he closes it down. Well, I was so there say, will be an appropriate position. Yeah. He'll yeah, shut it be a wonderful appointment. He'll yeah. shut it down. But. Well, I think he should... Nominate him as the Fed Fed Chairman first, then as the Secretary. Fed the Chairman. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Fed's going too. It's it's, it's yep. going south as yep. well. Well, um, on to that. I, I know uh, you've made some incredible decisions in your life. You've paid the price for making principal decisions, uh, not only in your faith but in your career. Mm-hmm. And uh, some people may know some about that. Some may not. But I just want to say, from the more I've gotten to know about you and the decisions you made. Uh, the more you're the kind of person that, that I would certainly want to be affiliated with in our show. Yeah, is. me too. And we just know God has wonderful and big things planned for you, and we're hoping we can hang on to your coattails as we see what unfolds mm-hmm. uh, in the impact <laughs> you're I having in our life. That. But it's going to start uh, here with this interview uh, because our listeners are going to find a little bit more your perspective on these very difficult issues we're going to discuss. And, and since we're just a few weeks away from a very, very important election, uh, 
it, it's very important that Bible-believing evangelicals, which uh, make a large bulk of our show, given this unique opportunity we have, uh, broadcasting daily at 4 p.m. out of Nashville, Tennessee, to leadership of the Southern Baptist Convention, Lifeway Bookstores, a number of Christian universities here, going over the airwaves mm-hmm. to a lot of the leadership in the evangelical world. Uh, it's kind of a, the Protestant Vatican around sort here. Sort of the Protestant yeah. Vatican, <laughs> uh, as well as all of our wonderful listeners uh, worldwide over the Internet. It's very important that evangelicals uh, now stop and take some time for introspection in regard to where they're going and in advance of some very momentous decisions that need to be made. And to start our deliberations, just to sort of see a snapshot of where we are, I think we need to actually access that in terms of a typical evangelical American worldview. And I just want to throw a little laundry list out there for you to comment on, uh, some things I jotted down. Uh, I would submit that a typical evangelical, if you had to stereotype one, would be a person who is uh, largely influenced by popular evangelical radio and television hosts. Uh, who generally teach that uh, all of American society should be coerced to adopt Christian values of sexual morality, for example, or against drugs or by the use of the state via force of law in taking control over uh, uh, federal positions of power uh, by using persons willing to enforce such values, so using the, the state as a means by which to accomplish these, uh, these, these uh, moral goals, uh, to accomplish the... Uh, the uh, imminent threat of enemies such as uh, Islam to uh, to address them, uh, Islam, communism, and Middle Eastern peoples, and to acknowledge that they're an uh, imminent threat, and to take whatever measures are necessary to enforce law and order uh, at home and to prevent the domestic infiltration of these people in a preemptive fashion, uh, and to provide military and monetary support to Israel to protect America's blessings and facilitate Bible prophecy. Uh, a few other things would be to preemptively invade other comp- uh, countries before they can plot against us while spreading our superior American-style democracy and values uh, coercively to diverse people groups uh, via military martial law, occupation, and control, and to stay loyal to the Republican Party as the Christian Party, even when candidates have unchristian positions as a necessary defense against the ultimate enemy, the Democratic Party. Now, I know that was a mouthful there. And I, I jotted down a, a few of them that I had sort of picked up over time from listening to uh, Christian speakers and leaders uh, in the evangelical world. Uh, of that laundry list, uh, do you generally agree uh, that that would describe a typical evangelical uh, believer right now uh, in their worldview? Or... I think that's a pretty, okay. Yeah, I do think that's a pretty good capsule summary. I would add to that the fact that almost every evangelical I've run into, evangelical Christian, is politically aware usually conservative by disposition, but also some who describe themselves as liberals of various hues, Mm -hmm. they almost always have a great interest in the same issue that brought me into politics, which was the right-to-life issue, the question of abortion, infanticide. And, of course, that leads to concern over the composition of the federal courts, the Supreme Court in particular, and that perhaps is the one real stronghold that exists within the evangelical Christian conservative community that leads people to retain their loyalty to the Republican Party irrespective of whatever betrayals are going on. So I think mm-hmm. that that's probably that's a good the, point. Most, the most potent issue for most evangelical conservative Christians, mm-hmm. or conservative evangelicals, if you will. And one of the reasons why, in spite of everything that's going on, they still believe that the really important thing is to have top-down control 
of the federal apparatus, beginning with the president, and hopefully from that perspective, a control of the Senate as well, in order to ensure that the right kind of justices are appointed to the Supreme Court, that they're approved by the Senate. And of course, the problem here has been amply documented by a number of analysts and observers, is that Roe itself, the 1973 decision that struck down all the laws that protect unborn children, Roe itself was the product of a Republican-dominated Supreme Court and was written by a Republican-appointed judge, and that if you take a look at the track record of Republican judicial nominees going back to the 1960s, it really doesn't fill one with confidence that a Republican president is going to be nominating strict constructionist judges, which is to say those who apply the Constitution as it is written, let alone judges who have the type of moral insight into the natural law that would lead to the repudiation of Roe. But I do think, as I look at the list here, as I try to limit the mindset of your typical evangelical conservative Christian, I find myself struck by the fact that so many have a really ambivalent relationship with the state. They see the state as a dangerous entity, but one they want to control, and they see themselves really, as I've written on my blog on many occasions, they see themselves embracing an unfortunate permutation on Lenin's famous equation of power. Lenin, the founder of the Soviet dictatorship, really reduced politics down to its bare essence when he said that the paramount concern in politics is Kotokovo, which is Russian for who does what to whom. And you want to be the who rather than the whom in that equation. Mm -hmm. You want to be the one who is the doer, not the one who is the receiver. And the hammer, and so, not the nail. Exactly. You want to be the hammer, not the nail, and not the anvil. And if you want to find what somebody really believes about politics and what that person's real principles are, take a look at the way that the person would make use of political power when it is in the hands of his faction, when he exercises that power, or when those whom he is allied to would be exercising power. If they consider themselves subject to the same rule set that they urge when they are on the receiving end of power, then you're dealing with somebody who is principled. Those principles may be infirm, but at least there is a set of principles there that are consistent. You're not dealing with an opportunistic hypocrite. And unfortunately, so many of the same type of evangelical political conservatives who complain about abuses of power when Democrats are exercising power when they are the ones who are controlling the apparatus of government, the military, the law enforcement bodies, the courts, and so forth, they, when they have the access to power that the Democrats had once exercised, uh, they find themselves behaving in very similar ways. It's just that now they're on the delivering end rather than the receiving end. It's a lot more fun to pitch than to catch, if you will. Is it sort of like the <laughs> War of the Roses or the battle you know, between the Catholics and exactly. Protestants? Okay. Yeah, nice. exactly. And you end up in a situation where it becomes a zero-sum game because you assume at some level that given the, the nature of the state is organized coercion and that the ultimate ratio, if you will, the ultimate ratio regis, the ultimate argument of the king is the canon, that you are afraid that when the other side comes to power, they're going to seek to eliminate you, either to suppress you, to silence you, or physically to eliminate you. And in a lot of historical struggles, you mentioned the War of the Roses, uh, you find where people have pursued that avenue of logic to such a degree that they've actually physically tried to liquidate their opponents. We've not gotten that far 
in 20th or 21st century America, although, of course, we had a nasty little affair between 1861 and 65 that had elements of that at work. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the bottom of a lot of these calculations is the idea that if we don't exercise power, the power that is taken from us will be used to silence us and ultimately to eliminate us. Mm-hmm. And the constitutional proposition is that the only power that government legitimately exercises is the power to protect the God-given rights of the individual. Mm -hmm. And so if the Constitution were to operate properly, you would be putting somebody who is your political opponent in a position where the only power he could exercise would be to protect your property and your person. Mm -hmm. That's how it's supposed to function. It sounds like it's a defensive role, not an offensive role. Exactly. And, And the franchise, that is to say the voting process, in our republic was supposed to be defensive, which is one of the reasons why it was invested to begin with exclusively in the property-owning class. You had to use it to protect your property against the ambitions of those who used the government to expropriate you. That, from the perspective of, of modern collectivist democratic people, people who believe that uh, democracy is basically an open-ended license to use government to plunder others, to enrich themselves with the government, they believe that the vote is something you use to get something you desire. Uh, there's that song by Bruce Horn- there's line in that song by Bruce Hornsby about how we passed a law back in '64 to give those who didn't have just a little more. Every time I hear that song, it's called that's the, uh, the way it is. Mm-hmm, right. Every time I hear that by Bruce Hornsby in the range. Every time I hear that song, I find myself stopping and correcting it, saying, "No, that's not the purpose of the voting franchise. Right. <laughs> it's not to give people a little more or to invite them to take something for government. It's to use the means of accountability." to hold at bay those who would use the power of government to do that to you. It's well, supposed I, to be purely defensive. I'd like to recommend that, you know, it used to be that answer songs were very popular. You know, you had uh, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To, and then there was Judy's, yes. Judy's Turn to Cry, that maybe you're, you have a calling to do an answer song <laughs> to that to explain these principles. You know, one thing that, that steps out when you I'm, – I'm glad you brought up the key issue with evangelicals in the right to life uh, issue – because it points out actually a lot of embedded contradictions that contradictions that exist. Because right now we see a strong uh, uh, commitment to the Republican Party that has been taxed this year with the nominee that has been selected, and there is a mm-hmm. plurality of Republicans who consciously, if we assume our our, our voting machines work correctly, consciously chose. A, a person that would challenge the views of evangelicals. And so far, the rank-and-file evangelicals have decided to follow a gentleman uh, who actually was, in my opinion, was was in practice a, an opponent of those who support pro-life activities and, yes, and really stood against pro-life. So, so actually, well, you could almost say their actions are saying their commitment to the Republican Party out-trumps their commitment to pro-life causes. Well, did he not even call Christians agents of intolerance? Yes, that is a slogan that we wear. Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I remember that from the 2000, 2000 campaign when he branded people who are convinced Christians who are politically active to be agents of intolerance. Can I refer Which to you as Agent Agent Grig? <laughs> <laughs> agent 86, just like Maxwell Smart. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to 86 his plan. Yeah, yeah I would too. The, the thing about uh, Mr. McCain is that he's had a very long political career here that is almost miraculously devoid of anything resembling principle. Uh, he's cultivated this image of the maverick, and until very recently, of course, his core constituency was the Eastern establishment media elite. They yeah. were besotted with the guy, and now well, now now John Kerry thought highly of him because he was going to have him yes. as his running mate. 
Mm-hmm. Last well, Joe Biden did too. Right. Yeah, Joe Biden once said he would be an honor to serve as, as the running mate to John McCain. And I'm surprised that that's not made it into a McCain campaign commercial. But right. there's a number of things about this campaign that have really left me surprised. Mm-hmm. But I think by virtue of the fact that he put on his ticket as the vice presidential nominee somebody who is perceived, quite rightly, I think, as a devout pro-lifer, uh, Mrs. Palin, of course, um, has a child who in many circumstances would have been considered dispensable because uh, young Trigg is... Uh, I, I don't want to say he is afflicted with Down syndrome because that would, mm-hmm. I think, be presumptuous. God created him that way. And anybody who's met uh, individuals who were born with Down syndrome with that genetic anomaly will understand that they are some of the sweetest and kindest and most yeah. angelic human beings you'd ever run into. Right. I honestly believe that it's a blessing, albeit one that is challenging to be around people who have that condition. And so I wouldn't go so far as to say he's afflicted with it. Mm -hmm. He does have Down syndrome, and that means that he will have a certain set of needs as he grows older that I think require the immediate attention of his mother. And I find myself, at the risk once again of being presumptuous, inclined to criticize Mrs. Palin for making politics a profession when there is that wonderful young child who needs her much more than anybody in the political system mm-hmm. possibly could. Yeah. And I can't think that there's anything more important than taking care of your child, mm-hmm. especially if you're a mother. That's simply how I mm-hmm. interpret the way that God structured the economy mm-hmm. of mankind. But Mrs. Palin is somebody who is seen as compensating for John McCain's lacunae as a Christian favorable candidate, somebody who has been, as you point out, on the other side of a lot of the issues having to do with the life culture, the culture of life and the assault upon it, as somebody who's not been notable in many of the social struggles that really agitate conservative evangelicals, somebody who's been broadly accepting of this uh, perversion of a sacred institution that is called homosexual marriage, things of this sort, and somebody whose lifestyle, quite frankly, has fallen unacceptably below in the moral par of what we would expect for somebody whose word is to be consequential as a public magistrate. Now, you mean something like being a serial adulterer? A serial adulterer, exactly. And an impenitent one. I really don't think that there is anything about his life which has displayed the type of godly sorrow that we would expect to see from somebody who is trying to make amends for cuckolding his first wife, who was left handicapped by a horrible accident she suffered when mm-hmm. Mr. McCain was uh, being held uh, hostage or held prisoner by the Vietnamese. I mean, a horrible thing on both sides of that equation. But right. uh, she was somebody who had been a fashion model and had a terrible accident that left her disfigured. And McCain decided that he wanted to trade up for somebody who was a, a wealthy beer heiress and mm-hmm. and had no other apparent qualifications to... Yeah attract the interest of somebody who'd be a man of principle. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that to this uh, to this day, Nancy Reagan apparently has had issues with John McCain because the Reagans were very close to John McCain's mm-hmm. first wife, and they really hated the way that she, she was treated by him. And once again, we're left here with a situation where the modern presidency is not restrained by any power under heaven. Mm-hmm. The constitutional limitations on that office have effectively been done away with. He's looked upon as the embodiment of the general will of the public. The only thing that restrains a president most of the time is the sanctity of his word. And so it's a relevant question, I think, mm-hmm. when you take a look at the character of that man, as his treatment of his marriage vows is of immediate consequence, mm-hmm. and Christians should take that seriously, 
as you point out, they have betrothed themselves to him in large measure because of matters of party affiliation and these other considerations about the judiciary, and also because he or his political handlers uh, thought it was a good idea to put somebody on the ticket who was seen as compensating for McCain's delinquencies. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and particularly since he's going to inherit the uh, stack of executive orders that President oh, Bush wow. has signed in, there are almost no checks and balances, and if a man doesn't yeah. have integrity, uh, he can be totally consumed with the uh, overreaching power. Uh, you know, that office is so powerful, it's only overshadowed by the uh, head of the Treasury Department now. Yeah, in exactly. Terms of, uh, <laughs> Ironically enough. Somewhere down as head of the U.N. down the thing. I, I want to get us back on track a little bit with our discussion, because you, you started flirting with the C word. Uh, which is uh, forbidden in much uh, discourse in the media and the culture, that C word being the Constitution. Uh, okay. It's something that you don't hear uh, the candidates talk about. You don't hear the media asking them about. Well, to quote George Bush, goodness, it's just a piece of paper. Yeah. Minus the naughty words. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> in contrast, to try to provide a positive contrast here, um, I have heard you describe yourself, in fact, on the front of your blog, the Pro Libertati blog, which is at freedominourtime.blogspot.com, correct? Yes. And a link you'll find at futurequake.com as well. Yeah. You describe yourself right at the top of your page as a, uh, a Christian, but also a Christian uh, libertarian. And you, you uh, just mentioned that very quickly, your political views, without really fleshing out the sum total of what that means. Can you explain to us the general premise of what that philosophy is, what its justification is in Scripture, how you feel like being a libertarian is compatible with uh, the evidence of Scripture, and how it could impact one's position and perspective on the kinds of issues that we're facing right now in the world, and, and even locally in our family and social circles? A libertarian, and I should have made myself a small L libertarian in the introduction to my blog rather than the capital L libertarian, mm -hmm. because there's a party of that name with which I have nothing to do. <clears throat> a libertarian of the sort I consider myself is focused on maximizing the individual liberty that was invested in each of us as a consequence of being created in God's image, and also in protecting the innate dignity of every human individual. And to that end, we look upon government as a problematic undertaking. As Madison pointed out, we're not able to confide that wise and disciplined men will always be at the help of government. And there is a defect in the better motives of individuals that makes them dangerous when they are wedded to power. It's said that power corrupts and that absolute power, power tends to corrupt and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. With all due respect to Lord Acton, I think he's got it exactly wrong. I think people corrupt power and it's because of the sin nature that we have inherited. And when that interacts with power, the result is often something deadly. It emancipates the baser elements of our nature and magnifies them through this apparatus that we call government. That's what Madison was talking about when he mentioned the, the defect of our personality, the, the, um, the lack of better uh, motives. And so when you're taking a look at all this in the perspective of somebody who believes in individual liberty, you recognize that there is a role for government in terms of protecting the innate rights of the individual, person, the property that he acquires through honest commerce and legitimate exchange with others, and the labor that he devotes to improving his material circumstances, and the improvement of his talents. But you also recognize that uh, government is the most dangerous thing we'll ever encounter. And if you take a look at the 
annals of political history, I've mentioned, I think, before, the work of R.J. Rummel, who's a retired professor of political science at the University of Hawaii. He tabulated that in the 20th century, some 170 million people were killed by their own governments. There's nothing... Mm. There's nothing in the record of human history that's anywhere near as lethal as government. And so a libertarian looks upon the government as an enemy that has to be held at arm's length and manipulated into doing things that are conducive to protecting individual freedom. Now, if you look at the Bible, which is where you should start, as you point out, whenever you're trying to determine what the intelligent and correct course of action would be, and you look particularly at that much-abused passage, the 13th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, it's clear that from a Christian view in revealed wisdom, revealed, revealed scripture, that the government is supposed to wield the sword against the evildoer, and that's the reason why we have a government. It's supposed to act in a timely fashion to wield the sword in defense of the innocent, and that's pretty much it. So the, the role of government would be, if you will, the collective or communal exercise of the individual right to self-defense. And that's the extent of the authority that government has been given by God. And looking earlier in the biblical narrative, I find myself struck by a couple of very important facts. The first of which is that nothing in the Ten Commandments assumes the existence of a government. You know, The first four have to do with our relationship with God and our covenantal relationship with uh, God in terms of believers and the things that he requires of us. And that, of course, is binding upon all people, particularly upon believers. These are things that resonate with the laws of nature that we can discern through the use of our senses and the law that is written on our hearts. And then the the other commandments all deal with our relationship with other human beings. And really there's nothing in there that has to do with the administration of power, whether you're talking about through a monarchy or through a republic or through some other order of government, it's not assumed in the, in the Ten Commandments that you would have this entity called human government. And indeed, it's not until the eighth chapter of 1 Samuel that we see the Israelites being given a government. And it's something they inflicted upon themselves because they rebelled against the order that God had created for them, which was patriarchal. They were in a loose confederation of tribes ruled by patriarchs, and the disputes were administered and adjudicated by judges. And then you had a separate order, which was the, the priestly order, to administer the rights of the law. And it got to the point where because of corruption in this arrangement, and also because of the ambition of a certain group of people within the larger Israelite community, I'm convinced, that they decided that they wanted to have a king. And the right. first reason mm-hmm. that they induced to justify this was that the king would lead us out to war so that we would be like all other nations. In other words, they were apostatizing. <laughs> they were repudiating <laughs> the unique blessing that they had of living without a terrestrial government, and they were very plentiful since the days of Nimrod mm-hmm. that we read about in the book of Genesis. And let me, before, to, before you proceed, let me make sure our listeners understand the kind of, um, I hate to use the word government, but the struct- <laughs> social structure that was designed, that God had provided for them when they went into the promised land for them to mm-hmm. live, was a very decentralized, tribal-type, you know, family-focused organization where everyone went, did their own thing, raised their families, raised their crops. And under the order of the judges, when an emergency occurred, there was an ad hoc uh, gathering mm-hmm. of people to address an issue. God raised up a leader. They dealt with it, and they immediately were dispersed to go yeah. back to their families, go back. And most of the time, that, that wasn't even necessary unless they had sinned. 
and had done something against God, and a threat appeared because of it. And then they had to give over their time and their and their husbands and things to go deal with it. Then they they went back to their own land. So so basically, they were free under the sky as long as they didn't infringe yeah. on their neighbors. They did their things, and so they weren't they weren't happy with being free. Uh, they wanted to. Uh, to, like say, look like the other nations who had some kind of, uh, uh, basically, I would call the king a, a version of an idol. Uh, they wanted oh, an idol so. as opposed to uh, God himself that they could look at as, as their king. And so when they pursued that, it's very ironic that the two things that God said was going to happen to them when they got the king that they wanted. But I'll let you take over from there. Exactly. The first warning was that their sons and their properties and their lands and everything they owned would be plundered by the king. And that they would know no end of the burden of taxation, and they would know no end of this plague that we call war. They were given a very detailed warning by God through the voice of the prophet Samuel. And they said, well, we want a king anyway. And so God instructed Samuel to go back and find a king. He said in so many words, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. And I've often thought that this is a really good illustration of H. L. Mencken's maxim that democracy is that theory of government that dictates that the people know what they want and they deserve to get it good and hard because <laughs> Israel got it good and hard. Right. They wanted a monarchy and they were given one. I mentioned Nimrod earlier, the sort of semi-mythical founder of ancient Babylon. He comes up here but, all the time. He comes up very frequently, yeah. I believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, his, his order, and if you read the Antiquities of Josephus, there are some fascinating passages describing his motivations. According to Josephus, the ancient uh, Jewish historian who had been a governor under Roman occupation, Nimrod wanted to pervert the order of government in such a way that everybody would depend upon him rather than upon God for everything that they had. That's the Babylonian wow. proposition. Government supplants the role of God and it becomes omniprovident, which means that its powers are fundamentally illimitable. And every government since the days of Nimrod has been an idol of that sort to a greater or lesser extent. And the order that God gave for the Israelites was meant to keep power from coalescing in the way that the Babylonians had sought when they started to create the Tower of Babel. Let us build a tower. Let us unite all of humanity under one government. Let there be nothing that is kept from us. There will be nothing under the heavens that can impede the pursuit of our ambitions. We will be a law to ourselves. Well, no, all men are under God's law, whether they recognize it or not. And the order that was created for the Israelites was that you were to obey the law, and in those instances where somebody transgressed the law, as you point out, there were provisions made for judges to sit, grievances to be heard, and punishments to be meted out where necessary. When they came under attack by one of the nations that surrounded them, there were contingency arrangements so that people could muster and defend this little confederation, after which the emergency having been dealt with, the emergency powers were dispelled and people went back to their normal lives. But what happened is that people who had certain ambitions that were not serviced through this arrangement persuaded the rest of the Israelites that they needed to have a king. And as a result, they ended up being put on a path because of their apostasy of almost endless misery and bloodshed and oppression and eventual destruction and dispersal. And that's one of the things that as a Christian libertarian I see as being reflective of persistent trends in human nature. And one of the reasons why, as I said, government is a very problematic thing. When you apply what we understand about government to the teachings of Jesus, and you take a look at the way that Jesus taught 
and the way that he urged people to treat themselves, there's nothing in the teachings of Jesus that implies any kind of a role for the state. He doesn't tell people to rebel, rebel against the state in his famous teaching about uh, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. He allows, I believe, and this is my personal insight, take it for whatever it may be worth, he allows the sovereign conscience of the believer to decide just how far Caesar can go because the, the believer knows that he actually belongs to God mm. and that Caesar is under God's jurisdiction as well. And so really, I believe the question of how far you go in permitting Caesar to take something from you was deliberately left to the conscience of the believer. And Jesus' teachings on social matters and economics, there are plenty of sayings of Jesus on the question of economics. <laughs> His teachings about how we treat each other, all these things assume that we're going to be operating according to what the Epistle of James calls the perfect law of liberty. We're supposed to be doing good because God puts it on our hearts to do good. We're supposed to be looking to each other's interests because God has given us a changed nature that will lead us to seek after others' interests. But we're supposed to eschew the exercise of power over others because we all recognize that we're all bondservants of Jesus Christ. Irrespective of the position we have in this order of things, we have to recognize that Ultimately, we all belong to God. And if you go into the writings of Augustine and some of the other people who started to ponder some of the really difficult questions of Christian discipleship in the political realm, it becomes clear that while we have citizenship in a given polity, a state in our case, or in a union of states, that citizenship is transitory and it's contingent. Our primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God, and that is not of this system of things. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he didn't mean to say that it has nothing to do with this earthly realm, because it certainly does. He meant to say it's not part of the system of things over which Caesar would have jurisdiction. So in that sense, you could almost say that to be a Christian is by necessity to be a secessionist in terms of how you look at the, the way that temporal government is arranged. You are part of the system only to the extent that it doesn't interfere with your ultimate allegiance to God. I don't see how you can embrace that point of view without looking upon the state as a very dangerous potential enemy and without embracing what would have to be called a libertarian perspective mm -hmm. on politics. You know, I interpret something that you just said earlier there uh, uh, about um, the response about rendering to Caesar and how he regards the state in that basically he says, look, if you want to put the yoke of the state on you, mm -hmm. you decide what it, how heavy the yoke you want it to be. Uh, we are blessed, for example, in our country to have some say in the matter uh, yes. as, as a collective uh, of citizens that we can say how heavy the, the yoke wants to be. Jesus says, my yoke is light, burden is easy. If, exactly. you, if you want to put a heavy yoke on yourself, you know, that's what you're going to do. It's going to, it's, it's going to give you problems with the light yoke that, that I have on my end. Uh, you know, we, our recent guest, Robert Hyde, we're talking about New Testament examples of this, talked about mm -hmm. the book of, of James and about uh, two principles taught in the book of James. One, the law of love, and the other, the law of mm -hmm. liberty. Yeah. Have you studied much about that within the book of James? Do you have any comment on it? I made reference to the perfect law of liberty, which is probably my favorite passage from any of the epistles, mm -hmm. because I think that so perfectly summarizes what Jesus offers us. First of all, it's liberty from sin. It's liberty from the consequences of sin, which is death and separation from God for eternity. And there's nothing to compare with that gift. But in this realm of things, this earthly realm we live in, the perfect law of liberty also means that we are free 
to pursue the development of the talents that God has given us and to enrich the lives of others with the talents that we've been given. And so I believe that that encapsulates a political worldview as well. And I believe that the passage in Galatians that I quote quite frequently, uh, let us uh, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, mm-hmm. I think that resonates with the teaching about the perfect law of liberty. Of course, in that case, in the case of the passage in Galatians, we're talking about the abolition of the law of Moses, the fact that nobody should be judged according to the requirements of the law with respect to Sabbaths, and dietary restrictions and Mm -hmm. things of that sort. But it also has to do with the fact that you don't have jurisdiction over others. Right. That people approach the throne of grace as individuals. We worship, of course, as a fellowship, and we seek each other's best interests. According to the law of love, we are ordered to to love each other. (laughs) That seems like a paradox Mm -hmm. because that's something that the flesh is disinclined to do. We're supposed to love each other as ourselves? How can we do that? Mm-hmm. Well, God gives us the grace to do that if we earnestly seek it. He will give us the grace to, to obey the law of love. But the point is, we don't have the calling to audit each other's shortcomings. We don't have the calling to administer over others in a fellowship. That's something that provided no end of trouble to the early church. I've been reading the Epistle of Clement to the uh, Corinthians, and one of the things that he dwells on at great length is the fact that anytime you'd find somebody who is arrogant enough and prideful enough to believe that he should be ruling over somebody, you're dealing with somebody he called a seditionist. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that seems rather strange. He wasn't talking about people who were making trouble for the government of Rome. He was talking about people who were seditionists as far as the kingdom of God were concerned. Now, does that relate yeah, somewhat to the, Ni- to the Nicolaitans? Didn't the Nicolaitans yeah. want to put in a yeah. group of clergymen? who basically yes. ruled over the uh, laity. Exactly. And that's something that uh, the the early church fathers, and just now, at this rather late advanced <laughs> stage in my life, I'm starting to read the Antonicene writings of the church fathers here. And it's it's just a wonderful study for me. And it's, it's such a corrective to so much of the stuff that I learned growing up in a very legalistic, formalistic church. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the things I'm, I'm learning is that that was a persistent temptation, was, of course, that of empire building within the church. And uh, you can see people who are church fathers of wildly divergent points of view about about peripheral matters of, of doctrine, not about fundamental matters of theology, but mm-hmm. peripheral matters of doctrine. Uh, people like Tertullian, for instance, who was very, I guess, conservative would be a, a good way of describing him, uh, teaching that... Uh, Everything that is done by the government, meaning the earthly government, bears the taint of coercion, whereas everything that is done by way of administering the kingdom of God is done on the basis of peaceful, voluntary cooperation. He used that as a way of contrasting Mm -hmm. the kingdom of God from the kingdom of man. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned, he's something of a conservative. Argon, on the other hand, was not a conservative, and Mm -hmm. unfortunately he got involved in some elements of speculative theology that seemed to resonate with some of the later Gnostic teachings. What Argon taught was that Christians can never obey the laws of sin. And that means that if you're dealing with somebody within the church who is exalting himself as some kind of a ruler and intermediary between the believer and and God, that you could not in good conscience follow the lead of that individual within the church. And the same principle obtained when you're talking about the rule of the terrestrial kingdom as well. Uh, Argon said, for instance, very explicitly, that because of this principle, Christians cannot obey the law of sin. They cannot, in all circumstances, participate in 
or pray for the success of Caesar's wars. And so there's a very abrupt limit to what Caesar can require of the Christian believer, according to the teachings of the Church Fathers here. And of course, these were men who sealed the testimony of these principles with their martyrdom in many instances, mm-hmm. uh, in the serene confidence that they were doing God's will. And so, and once again, as somebody who describes himself as an individualist or libertarian politically, who's a Christian first and foremost by conviction, I take away from this the fact that my unconditional duty is to do that which I am convinced is right before God. And that means that I am going to be frequently at loggerheads with the government that rules me, Mm -hmm. because the duty of the government, and it's been this way, unfortunately, in human government since the time of Babel, the the first uh, ambition of government is to usurp the role of God. Right, and so there's a necessary and irreducible antagonism there and if I under- believer in government. And if I understand what the point you're making is, if an individual in the church stands up and tries to take that role of coercing you, they in fact are taking the role of God, and yes. they are getting in between that relationships of coercion, uh, where, where even uh, God Himself stays His hands with us and uses yeah. the uh, uses the power of persuasion, like the old hymn, softly and tenderly. Um, you know, you know, one uh, thought that I had related back to the apostolic age that we see in Scripture mm-hmm. that that relates to this was the whole fact that when the Gentiles came to the faith, the 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 Jewish Christians uh, who made the the beginning church and the, the apostles wrung their hands over what should they expect the Gentiles to do when they became Christian? How much of the law should they adopt? Yeah. And uh, here you have Peter and these these other guys wrangling over this, and they basically come to the conclusion that except for a, just a, a couple of really, really basic things like not drinking blood or eating meat sacrificed to idols, these kind of things, mm-hmm. basically they didn't lay the burden of the law on their backs mm-hmm. because they hadn't willingly done it. And and I can look at the uh, the Bible from a libertarian using libertarian language. Mm-hmm. To to actually say and look in the Old Testament where we see a different environment. In fact, uh, um, our, our good friend Tom here had mentioned about Phineas, who took who sort of took charge of a situation when there was sin, you know, with the Midianites mm-hmm. in the camp, and ran the spear through the tent, and uh, yeah. that certainly was coercion. I think anybody could agree with that. <laughs> but but you, you know, but you know, the, the the point I made is that you know they had a little different environment because when they yes. when they met God, they entered into a contractual agreement. Which is considered—I uh, hate to use the word sacred—but but something that is of merit within a libertarian worldview, that mm-hmm. that we can freely enter into contracts and agreements, and they're expected to abide by them. They freely and voluntarily entered into a contract with the Lord God, who led them out of Egypt, and part of that agreement was that they were going to abide by certain means of behavior, and they also adopted the priest the priesthood as the agents that were selected to enforce it. And they willingly agreed upon that. So when the priesthood stands up and starts enforcing it, it's all basically uh, in, conducive to the voluntary arrangement that they made uh, mm-hmm. generations ago. Whereas we get in the New Testament, we have Gentiles come along, and finally they get the message that, that the Gentiles have not willingly gone into all that, nor do we have any indication that God intended for them to. Uh, they, they, they don't need necessarily the same schoolmaster, or we don't need the same message taught again. We already exactly. have a testament written already. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so we go beyond. So, to me, I think a, a libertarian way of considering these things fits nicely into understanding a, a worldview in Scripture itself. 
uh, where basically we have a free environment and we have an environment where even within the church coercion is not recommended. We do have the opportunity, I would say in extreme case, if you see in the epistles, of um, isolation, uh, ostracizing. If people refuse to live in a healthy way that's healthy for the community, that could create harm to them, they, they st- really still don't uh, infer coercion and leave that only to God as a last resort. Yeah, I can't, they, think, of a, I can't think of a single instance in, in either testament where God takes away people's free will. Yeah. Right. But 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 even within the within the administration or government of the church, and I hate to use the word government in the church, but mm-hmm. in 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 this economy, however it functions, uh, the, the 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 most severe course of action is to basically distance yourself from one who insists on leading living in a way that's unhealthy to the body, but it's still exactly. not it's still not coercive to him. So exactly. So, so, you can remove him from communion in the body. You can eschew his presence. You can avoid him. You can shun him. But you cannot exercise coercion to try to compel him to profess to believe in a certain way because we really don't have jurisdiction over what goes on inside the heart and mind of another individual. Mm-hmm. That's God's domain. Only mm-hmm. God can change a heart. Only God can change a mind. And it is a perfect example of self-idolatry and the vaunting arrogance of hubristic, self-enraptured pride to profess that we could change the way somebody thinks. You know, somebody can choose to change his opinions, or God can change his opinions, but that's something beyond mm-hmm. human jurisdiction. And it's interesting, as you talk about the administration of the church and the the way that the believers were taught to avoid coercion, I'm looking now at the first epistle of Clement, and in the, I believe, the 16th chapter, talking about Christ as an example of humility, and he makes exactly the point you were making about the fact that God didn't force people to accept or reject him. He said, for Christ is of those who are humble-minded and not of those who exalt themselves over his flock. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the scepter of the majesty of God, did not come in the pomp of pride or arrogance, although he might have done so, but in the lowly condition as the Holy Spirit had declared regarding him. And then he goes on to quote the book of Isaiah and one of the prophecies about how nobody would believe our report because he was meek and lowly. Mm-hmm. The point is that when he taught, when Jesus taught as one having authority, he didn't teach as one who was trying to exercise power over others. Mm-hmm. I, I've always been fascinated by this distinction between power and authority. I mentioned that power doesn't corrupt. You know, Power is corrupted by its use on the part of sinful people who are seeking to deploy it against others. Power is something that, when used by sinful people, objectifies others. Whereas authority, as you pointed out with respect to contractual entering, people enter contractually into certain types of arrangements, authority is the result of consent. It's power that is delegated or lent to somebody to accomplish certain limited ends. And it's it's something that can be withdrawn from that individual if it's being used improperly. And so I think that there's too little authority and way too much exercise of power both inside the church and, of course, in the realm of government, however constituted. And so I think that's that's another distinction here that we get with the Constitution, is that you have a written law which governs the government, which defines everything the government can do, and by specifying those functions, denies the government the right or the means to do anything else, apart from that which is specifically tasked to do. That's a really good example of delegated authority, and that's a perfect example of something that is the distillate of the Christian worldview. We're going to write down and contractually compel 
the government only to do these certain things mm-hmm. on the assumption that it will be carrying out these limited functions and leave to the sovereign uh, individual will of everybody else how they're going to arrange their own lives, assuming that by doing so they're not going to transgress against the rights of others. That's uniquely Christian in its providence. There's nothing else in human history by way of a, a culture or a worldview that could have created that type of an arrangement. And unfortunately, as we pointed out earlier in this discussion, as it's been said, the Constitution of the United States poses little threat to our current system of government. It's almost completely ignored. You mentioned that the media doesn't Mm -hmm. allow people to talk about the Constitution as a measuring stick, as a criterion for judging the performance of politicians. But as a libertarian, as a Christian who is a libertarian by, by way of political perspective, I think the Constitution, while imperfect, it's the product of human hands after all, while imperfect is a valuable resource that is altogether too frequently neglected by the people who are supposed to be enforcing it, and that, of course, is the people at large. Well, and I think any document like that, uh, by its nature, it doesn't have to be necessarily a fountain of truth. If it just allows and gives us the freedom for us to go search truth, it's, Mm -hmm. it's accomplished its task. Exactly. Uh, if, exactly. it, if, it, if it gives us the freedom of self-determination, and I think that's what God has tried to structure uh, for us uh, in, in the particular body itself. And, you know, I, I think about the trial that Jesus went through when he was told, don't you know I have the uh, authority over your life and death? And, and Jesus responds, that, you know, you have no authority except it were given to you. Many exactly. people, I think, misread that to mm-hmm. imply that um, uh, God has ordained people to abuse that power. Uh, yes. I, I interpret it to mean that, that Jesus is saying your, your power is transient. You have your power only because this turns out to be God's will in seeing this through. And this is the only reason that you're being allowed to do this right now and the reason why I'm being compliant. Exactly. So, I, I guess that's, that's exactly how I viewed it as well. There's two, there are so many other passages of the Scripture that have been wrested and orphaned from their context and used to justify the abuses of constituted power and yeah. have been recited from pulpits and embedded in sermons and used as apologies on behalf of horrible, horrible crimes about which we can say the same thing. These are not unconditional grants of power to people to commit abuses because nobody has ever been ordained to do something which is wrong. These are instances where the unconditional sovereignty of God is invoked, and people are either being advised or rebuked, chastised, for transgressing the limits of the authority that they have been given. And this is something that uh, has become really apparent over the last eight or so years during the the reign of George Bush the Lesser, as I like to refer to him. (laughs) So So many of the leading lights of evangelical Christianity when we were going to war in 2003 would go to the book of Ecclesiastes and recite the there is a time for everything under heaven sermon. As a matter of fact, the week before the war began, I was sitting in church with my wonderful wife, Corinne, and the pastor said, let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. I turned to Corinne and said, can we leave? And then, you know, knowing exactly what would follow. And then, of course, we've, we've received how many iterations, I don't know, of the the badly misrepresented teachings of Romans chapter 13. Yeah. And what that teaches, of course, is a type of crude positivism where we're supposed to believe that because something is, it was ordained by God to be this way. 
and that our duty as Christians is simply to conform to the will of those in authority over us, to which I respond, no, they don't exercise authority over us. They exercise authority among us. They're no greater than us. They're not above us on a hierarchy of some sort. They are all equal with us before God, and the only type of authority they could exercise is to carry out God's will. You know, that's where right. we get into the really deep teachings, I think, about what, uh, what we really oppose. We, we oppose principalities and powers, you know, those who are vaunting themselves above us for the purpose of leading us away from a relationship with God and leading us away from a type of life that would reflect God's teachings. Well, let, let, let me uh, uh, pursue Very that further, because this is going to be a contrast to what we just talked about, about a testimony of, of liberty and freedom of self-determination as expressed in the Bible, what we've talked about. Uh, the, the other side of the fence is where people pursue in, in what we would call a theocracy. Uh, mm-hmm. And many well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians, very sincere and devoted, see an ideal being a theocracy in our country. Uh, they may not express it in those words, but they, they see an ideal if we could find a leader that would do just the exact kind of things we'd want a pastor to do in a pulpit in a church. But we're doing it with the authority of uh, the church and the authority of God and and people who live moral lives counter to what we espouse or what we believe in. We now have the authority to coercively force them to mend their ways and be an agent for God in being able to change them to go this direction. But in, in, in explaining what I consider to be the dangers of theocracy or, in fact, even taking that power on and being able to use that power to force people coercively using the state to do it um, – I have pointed out to other people I've explained that uh, the ramifications, if, uh, for example, this is just a, a case history, if, if a God-fearing and devout Seventh-day Adventist were elected president and were allowed to impress his very sincere theological belief upon the citizens to honor God by enforcing Saturday worship only uh, and abolishing Sunday worship in America. Mm-hmm. Now, in other words, devout people, uh, you know, honoring God by forcing what they deem to be as very godly as far as, you know, Saturday worship in their eyes on the nation's people can be very, very attractive. That can be an attractive thing for someone being devoted to God and, and taking the power of the state to be able to make God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, it's very attractive unless you're on the outside looking in. And even if you're a person of faith when that happens. Um, I, I've done a very poor job of explaining this, but can you explain the dangers of using the coercive force of the state to accomplish kingdom objectives? And how, and how can we properly classify the proper duties of the state and, and kingdom of God business through the church? The biggest problem here I see is that, I, I believe it was Aldous Huxley who said that the means we employ are the ends of the making. And so when you use coercive means for supposedly good ends what you end up with is the end of coercion. You simply institutionalize the process of coercing, coercing people. And there's no way, once again, that you can coerce somebody into changing what he really thinks and what he really believes. And that's sort of the error of the inquisitor, the idea that if you can somehow put this person under duress and scourge his flesh until he professes to believe something, that you changed his soul. Well, no. Once again, changing souls is the business of God. That's very clearly taught in Scripture. There's no end of explicit teachings on that subject in the epistles of Paul particularly, that only the Holy Spirit, which is to say God the Spirit, can change what we are inside. And so the government of man has no proper jurisdiction over the mind or the inner life of man. The business of God takes place entirely 
where salvation is concerned, inside the soul of man. That's a realm into which government simply cannot go. We don't have the means, and if we had the means, uh, we'd be God, and we're not. <laughs> so you have to separate the terrestrial from the divine in that respect. God can do his work. He will do his work. There's nothing we can do to stop him. He will do his work within the souls of men. What so, we can do... So, you know, in other words, you're saying, for example, if, if we pass a law uh, prohibiting strong drink, for example, we yes. cannot stop the lust within man to pursue no. strong and drink. And passing those further, exactly. passing that law always breeds rebellion. I've seen that. Yeah. You can look at history in every single, in every single case. It, it breeds rebellion amongst individuals. Yeah, exactly. It, it incites, it catalyzes rebellion. And as you point out, it doesn't deal with the root, which is, of course, the sin. You yeah. can... You can curtail the sin or you can drive the sin underground where it will flourish, quite frankly. That's one of the great lessons of every experiment in any kind of prohibition is that if you take something that is a purely self-referential vice and try to criminalize it, you eventually create an underground where it flourishes quite nicely. And that's why I think there was wisdom in the fact that, say, 130, 140 years ago when this country was still culturally much closer to being a Christian society than it is today, in terms of the way people use their their spare time, the way they define themselves in the universe, they at the time did not have laws against narcotics use. Narcotics use was not unknown. There was a great epidemic of it after the war between the states. A lot of people became addicted to laudanum. A lot of people became addicted to opiates of various types. But there was no law against the use of narcotics or the possession of narcotics. It wasn't until government got into the soul craft business because of the apostate social gospel religion uh, working in tandem with what was called the progressive movement, which was informed by Marx primarily, that we mm. started to see laws against the imbibing of alcohol and laws against the consumption of various kinds of narcotics. I'm somebody who doesn't drink at all. I have no interest in alcohol. I very well might be allergic to it. I have a very strong mm. aversive reaction to the smell of alcohol. I've got no interest in narcotics. I don't even like to take aspirin. But what I recognize here is that government doesn't own the body of the individual. God owns the body of the individual, and God will settle for the abuse of the body that is supposed to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's within God's jurisdiction. So it becomes a jurisdictional question. God really doesn't like us to intrude on his jurisdiction. That's called idolatry. <laughs> and if you go back once again and take a look at what Clement had to say about people who would seek to exercise coercion over the minds of other people, he calls them seditionists. Those who seek to use depraved means, meaning the exercise of government coercion, to improve the minds, the lives, the souls of others, are seditionists against God's law from the perspective of the second century, uh, sometimes first century, fathers of the Christian church. And a lot of this, as you say, is done out of what we'd have to consider to be commendable motives. People don't like the fact that uh, individuals uh, waste their lives and often ruin their families through vices of various kinds. But there are ways that uh, one can encourage and tutor others about the virtue of abstaining from these self-destructive practices that work in harmony with God's spirit to improve the lives of people that don't involve coercion. And I really believe that the one lasting consequence of our various experiments and prohibition has been the fatal expansion of the power of government and the corruption of the power of government because there's always this interest in 
in ensuring that you never solve a problem, but the problem exists so as to justify further expansion of government power. And also the creation of this huge and metastasizing uh, underground, not only in terms of what uh, we have by way of narcotics uh, here in the United States and elsewhere, but also in terms of this subculture that we've created with the largest prison population in human history. In the United States of America, the so-called land of the free, is in absolute terms the largest jailer of human beings in human history. And that's in large measure a result of the attempt to enforce what we have to call prohibition, narcotics mm -hmm. laws particularly. And that, that, I think, is out of the same impulse that uh, we saw in the social gospel movement in the late 19th century. The idea is that we have to create the kingdom of God, then turn it over to him, you know, as if God couldn't accomplish this without mm -hmm. our help. And our help mm -hmm. would take the form of compelling others to be just as good as we supposedly are. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're talking about a d dominionism type uh Very much worldview. so, yes. Uh, uh, yes. Which, which to me is just pure arrogance. Well, it's Gnosticism think it's, really at its root, I think. Well. Yes, sure. exactly. Okay. I agree with that all. Wholeheartedly. Well, uh, l let me move forward, and I, and I hope our listeners have understood what, what we just had in this discourse about the dangers of theocracy. I know uh, some of my Christian friends have been shocked when they've asked me about our schools and how they wish we had prayer and Bible reading in schools. And I, and I have to tell them that based upon, and this is not an indictment against all teachers. I know many, many wonderful, wonderful mm -hmm. teachers. But from a number of teachers I've known in certain public schools, that the last thing I would want them to do is to teach, if I had children, would be to teach them uh, spiritual truths. Because I found yeah. some of them to be such messed up people that that would yeah. be the last thing I'd want to turn over to them, even if I was instructing them at church and at home. Uh, what I really want, I don't want necessarily uh, prayer and Bible in schools. I want to right to raise my own children if I have children. Exactly. I want the right I mean, to be able to educate them as I see fit. That's the that's the real right to set my children on the right course if I were to, to be a father. The Bible makes it very clear that that is the inescapable duty of parents is to teach your children in all things pertaining to truth and righteousness. And you can receive help if you see fit or if you're in circumstances where it's necessary, but ultimately you're the one who's in charge and you're the one who's accountable. And the founding precepts of our republic draw in part their inspiration from John Locke and the Second Treatise on Government, in which Locke made it very clear that his perspective was that the commandment that children should honor their parents included protecting that relationship against the encroachments of the state, how there's no government that would ever have the right to sever the bond between parent and child where it came to the instruction of the child and the provision of that child for a life as a responsible free individual. And so what we have now when we're talking about the question of theocracy as applied to the government schools, it's a really good example of what I call the seat of the table fallacy. So many of these social institutions that are run by government right now are looked upon by often well-intentioned Christians as strongholds that need to be infiltrated and occupied and they can be turned into institutions that would be godly and worthwhile if the right people ran them. Hmm. Right. Now, as a libertarian, I believe that government has no right to be running an education system because every government that runs an education system wants that system to do what? It wants that system to exalt the government. Right. You're not going to be teaching children in a government-run school to be skeptical about the exercise of government power. And that's one of the reasons why, because of my home circumstances, and I won't go into detail about uh, the struggles and the challenges we face, simply beyond beyond saying simply that we had been homeschooling our older sons, 
we've had to put them in the local schools here, unfortunately. We're homeschooling our daughters. Mm-hmm. And my older sons frequently find themselves the odd men out in every conversation they have that has anything to do with politics because they have been taught to be skeptical about the state and right. about its yeah. exercise of power. But people who are often well-intentioned, well-meaning, and I believe innocently motivated Christians simply believe that if we have the right Christian people running a government school system, that not only could we protect our children, but what's more, we could elevate and exalt the children of those who are not believers. We could use this as a way of, of advancing the kingdom of God. Well, no, once again, you'd start to exercise coercion. You, it always involves coercion. There are yeah. mm-hmm. property taxes that pay for the school. Those taxes are, are extracted through coercion or the threat of the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, public schools exercise discipline. That involves coercion. If you are and the business of John Jockers, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, co- coercion breeds resentment. And that's why yes. it backfires. Mm-hmm. If if you want yeah. to persuade someone to see the light in a certain thing, the last thing you want to do is coerce them to do it. And that's exactly uh, I, right. I find that we make that mistake so many times. And and, and if you look, you know, uh, just like the example we're talking about, the freedom to be able to, you know, uh, use our own resources to educate our own children, um, that should not be a threat to anyone in society. It should not be a threat to the government. It should not be a threat to people mm-hmm. who have different views it's on us. Only, the it's right only to be left alone. Being dishonest. Well, that's in, true. In government. Yeah. But, but if the government has a problem with you being left alone to, to be self-determined, that's a definition that the government is evil. That is a sign yeah, that yeah, is embroaching exactly. evil is when it, ha- when it has heartburn because then it exposes it has other motives other than your yep. best interest. And, but I'd like for Christians to stop and think when we use terms at our rallies and other kind of things about we want to get our people in and make this a Christian nation again and our Christian ideals and these decisions to do this and that or whatever, you know, it, it, some some ways it makes me feel good. It sounds good. I'd like mm-hmm. to see good yeah. godly leaders. I'd love all of that. But if you put yourself in the mind of those who in a society that's getting increasingly pagan and increasingly foreign to the to the kind of uh, not, not only just the spiritual truths I have, but the culture that goes around Christianity. When they hear t- terminology and things foreign to them, they immediately bristle and they see theocracy coming, and they're going to offer resistance. Now, exactly, that, that, and, and they should. What what Christians I believe should be doing would be to minimize and seek to abolish the exercise of coercion as a way of controlling others and to make it clear that they will invite others to share that which we have been given. Correct. But we understand that we have never been given a mission to coerce them into professing to believe that which we believe. And on that basis, I think it's not only better from the perspective of those who want to enhance human individual freedom, it's better from the perspective of trying to lead souls to Christ, which is what we should be doing. Right. Well, you know, we're just about out of time here. We've, we've, We've focused on first principles. And I'm not I'm not shocked that we've used up most of our time before this, and we're getting down to the last few minutes to be able to focus on the hard decisions that um, Christians need to make. So I'm going to forego our, our following questions. I'd like to have you back to talk about some of the specifics. <laughs> uh, the die is All going right. to be the die is going to be cast when you come back. We're going to have a leader selected. He may even be in place by the time. And um, we're going to have... That's assuming the government hasn't collapsed. Assuming the government hasn't collapsed and we're not... (laughs) That may not be a good assumption. Yeah. (laughs) As long as we're not like Road Warrior, you know, uh, chasing uh, oil tankers across the desert. I just don't see you wearing a a leather jacket, Dr. Future. Yeah, I've got the Mohawk ready. I'm ready (laughs) to go on in. But uh, in in lieu of that, we've got just a few minutes, maybe uh, 10 minutes or so left, where... um, 
I'd like for you to share the last 10 minutes. This is going to be aired just a, a couple of days uh, before people go into the booths. If you're Christian brothers and sisters out there, if you've got 10 minutes to tell them what they need to know to make right decisions when they make that that uh, that very important vote, what are you going to tell them? When you are going into the voting booth to cast a ballot on behalf of a candidate, what you were doing is you were saying that the person to whom you're giving your support is somebody you would entrust with a part of the power, the aggregated power, that could be used to take everything you own, including your life, if it is employed against the limitations of the Constitution and the purposes of God's law. This is something that our founding fathers understood. Government is nothing more, nothing less than the praxis of coercive force. It's the exercise of lethal force or the threat of the exercise of lethal force. And so when you're evaluating your candidates for public office, let's take a look, for instance, at the Congress. If you're a member of the House of Representatives, the incumbent who represents your district is somebody who is party to the recent so-called bailout bill, which was, of course, summarily unconstitutional and involved the literal larceny of $700 billion in order to pay a group of well-entrenched political crooks on Wall Street. If he was party to that, you have to ask yourself if that's something you would see fit to reward. And that's a really good dividing line issue, I think, that would separate incumbents who are defensible from incumbents who simply cannot be returned to Washington. This is something that simply will not work. You simply cannot improve the performance of corrupt institutions by giving them plundered wealth. And this is something that completely violated not only the will of, almost unanimous will of the electorate, but more importantly, the oath of office sworn before God to uphold the Constitution, because nothing in the Constitution would justify that. So that simplifies things considerably for a Christian, I believe. If your local representative, the incumbent representing your district, was party to this act of participatory larceny, you can't vote for him. You cannot reward somebody who violates the commandment against theft. <clears throat> if, you're, if you're incumbent with somebody who voted against that measure and otherwise has compiled a voting record which suggests that he understands, he or she understands, and at least makes a decent effort to follow the Constitution, that becomes a little bit more difficult, a decision to make. But in terms of incumbency, the the case is pretty cut and dried. What about in the pre- about- I'm sorry, I was going to say in the presidential booth. What about this whole concept of the lesser two evils that well, uh, lesser- e- evangelical teachers are are teaching that on the radio and elsewhere? Oh boy, evangelical teachers not acquainted with the Book of Romans once again. If they read Romans three through six, it makes it very clear we can't support the lesser of two evils. It, it is said of us, "Let us do evil that good may come." Heaven forbid. I mean, that's a very clear teaching. Uh, Paul said that's something that we've been accused of saying, and we have nothing to do with that. But the lesser, I call this the the fallacy of lesser evilism, because the lesser evil is never done. The the greater evil is that which is done, not that which is hypothesized. We're always told that the evil we avoid is the greater evil, but it can't be, because it's never the evil that is chosen. So the greater evil, by definition, is that which we select. And that's something that Paul pointed out, Christians simply cannot have any part in. And when we're talking about the presidential election here, this is an even simpler proposition. Neither of these individuals is facially worthy of a Christian's support. 
on this one issue alone, on the issue of the, the grand larceny, the Uber bailout, the $700 billion pilferage mm-hmm. of plundered wealth to, to lavish on people who are, are impenitent criminals on Wall Street, they stood flanking George W. Bush, did Mr. Obama and Mr. McCain, on the White House steps and endorsed this act. They both voted for it. As a matter of fact, Mr. Obama went so far as to give a very detailed and and somewhat commendable speech explaining the manifold ways, or some of them, that this was a bad piece of legislation, and then he voted for it anyway. So on that basis alone, neither of them can command the support of a Christian. There are worthier candidates, none of whom will be elected, unfortunately, who are running for president right now, but at least that's a vote you can live with, and ultimately you've not wasted your vote if by casting a ballot you have made a decision that your conscience can abide. Are there other gentlemen out there who impress you with your ability to stand consistent with the principles you talked about? Well, I think that the Constitution Party candidate, Chuck Baldwin, is a very good candidate. I've met him. I think he's a tremendous individual. He's a very good writer. He's a splendid speaker. He's somebody whose policy platform commands my respect and Everything but a couple of areas, where as a libertarian, I'm going to have to part company with him. But he does have, at very least, when you're talking about such things as the so-called war on drugs and understanding of the fact, the fact that the federal government is not permitted by the Constitution to be involved in that enterprise. And so on that basis, on the basis of the fact that he understands, respects, and would uphold the text of the Constitution, I'd find him worthy of support. Now, he's an I evangelical pastor that yeah, is against, against drug laws and against the war in Iraq. And he's still an yeah. evangelical pastor. Most people exactly. would say that would blow their mind. I would say that that's a very useful, verifiable example of the fact that God still does miracles. The fact that he's still an evangelical pastor, eschewing the war in Iraq, and also having what many people would consider to be an, uh, a heathen perspective on the war on drugs. Well, there's nothing heathenish about believing that the government doesn't own you. Mm-hmm. And I think from that perspective, he and I would have a lot of common ground. There are other third-party candidates. Uh, Bob Barr is running for the Libertarian Party. I don't really have a whole lot of respect for Mr. Barr as a candidate. In many ways, he's a lot like uh, Mr. McCain, the fact that his his background as a, a multiple divorced and, and often unfaithful husband would disqualify him in my eyes as somebody whose word I could trust. And on top of that, I think he also supported the bailout in spite of the fact that he professes mm-hmm. to be a libertarian. That's a really good reason, or a really good example, rather, of the reason why wow. I don't call myself a big L libertarian, is that the contemporary libertarian party seems to be all over the map in terms of its first principles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, in our last two, two to three minutes that we have, uh, I, I want to close with uh, making sure people understand your blog and also your book that's available. Uh, All right. But the, and you, and you're, you're, you don't really push your book much, but I, I believe you should. But uh, the, um, in conclusion, do you think after this election, do you think evangelicals will begin to realign and will question some of these time-honored beliefs they've had for a generation and, and maybe go toward the more libertarian-type approach? Assuming that Obama wins, and that seems to be a good assumption right now, we're going to find Republican conservatives of all varieties, including evangelical Christians, in opposition. And this is really an interesting paradox about conservatives, is that they don't like to play defense. They much prefer to be on the offense. Mm -hmm. And when you have liberal presidents in power, 
they tend to be less injurious to liberty than so-called Republican conservatives. They tend to spend less money. Congress tends to go into opposition a little bit more forcefully. The public tends to be more skeptical about government power. There are exceptions, FDR being one, LBJ mm -hmm. being another. But if you take a look at the contrast between Bill Clinton and George W. Bush in terms of the size and expense of government, that's a really good validation of my thesis, that liberal Democrats are actually less injurious. That being the case, and also given the fact that Obama is viewed with a great deal of alarm, in many ways understandably and defensively so, by evangelical conservatives, I think that you're going to find a lot of conservatives who had been preaching a type of monarchism during the reign of George W. Bush suddenly rediscovering the virtues of limited government and mm -hmm. small constitutional Republican-style executive uh, government in particular. You're going to find a lot of people suddenly dusting off their copies of the Constitution and itemizing the ways that the president is violating the Constitution as opposed to assuming that the president simply can do anything that his sovereign will commands. Mm -hmm. So I think that might be healthy. I think you might actually find that in opposition, these principles are going to be reintroduced and rather forcefully because we're entering a period of time now where the power of government and the expense of government have gone hyperbolic. Mm -hmm. we're, we're setting right. ourselves up for, for hyperinflation. Uh, we've got the rudiments of martial law in place, which is the subject of my book, Liberty and Eclipse. It talks about the mili the militarization and the centralization of law enforcement. And where can they get that book? Liberty and Eclipse is available through Amazon.com. And if they go to my blog, Pro Libertate, there's always an, a little advertisement at the bottom of every essay for Liberty and Eclipse. Mm -hmm. uh, to go to my blog, once again, as you pointed out, it's freedominourtime.blogspot.com. Freedom in Our Time is one word, freedominourtime.blogspot.com. Or, okay. or they can go to willgrig.com, and there's a link in the upper right-hand corner of that page to Pro Libertate. Uh, willgrig.com yeah. is a much easier URL to remember. <laughs> well, we we have to leave right now, but uh, I want to thank you so much for yeah, your you service. Yeah, you great. Uh, listeners, well, thank you. Please buy his book. And uh, I can tell you, anytime you want to make a little audio clip of something that you want to make a commentary on, mm -hmm. we would love to put it right there on the front of futurequake.com at any time that you'd feel so inclined. Uh, in well, between, thank you. In, I, will, I will make a point of doing that. We, we would right. love to put it on there, and we will point people to it. Uh, but we want to point people to getting your book. Uh, and uh, we'd like to have you back. We, we have a whole list of questions that you have in your hands that we want to ask you. We, we, we'd like for you. Are you planning this? We'd Everything like for we you to come on, back. We get through like 25 know, we, of the stuff. We, we, we just get through a bit of it. God bless you. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so brother, much. Brother Will, thank you for your service to the body of Christ, and uh, we look forward to having you back again. Thank you so much, and God bless the two of you as well. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. And this is Friday, which here goes your quiz again, your regular Friday quiz. This is... There is a time Bath limit day. on this. Oh, Bath really? Day? No. Bath day? No. It oh, is. wait. Oh, I know. It's... Too much time. Oh. Tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. Now we have 20 minutes left. Oh, boy. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, after the wonderful discussion we've had this week with William Grigg on our show, we're sorry to have to disappoint you with Friday on tomorrow's tremors. Yeah, he was great, Tom wasn't he? and I. But, yeah, uh, yeah he, he, 
it's guests like him and Robert Hyde and some of our similar guests that really make us look good here at the show. And we hope that you really appreciated it. Yeah. And um, send us an email. Let us know what you think about it. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about some things in the news. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this is being broadcast over the radio a few days before Election Day. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a little bit of an emphasis on that. Mm-hmm. And uh, before I forget, I'll get caught up and forget to remind people. Uh, remember when you walk in that uh, box, that election booth, to think about the kind of things we've talked about on Future Quake here. Mm-hmm. I really recommend you meditate on it, pray about it. Um, remember we've talked a lot about the bailout in the last few weeks. A whole lot. Uh, now, I'm providing you this for information purposes mm-hmm. and, and news, newsworthy information. Well, I know, that, I know that my representative voted for the bailout. Even right. though that he got uh, twenty thousand, Cooper call, Cooper voted for yeah. the bailout. Even though he got calls a hundred to one against. Same with Bart Gordon. Bart Gordon mm-hmm. voted for the bailout, although his office confessed that they had overwhelming uh, feedback from the citizens against it. Mm-hmm. Vote anyway. Uh, Marsha Blackburn is the only one I know in our general region here mm-hmm. that voted against the bailout. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other two voted uh, for it. Also, now these two gentlemen we just mentioned were, were Democrats. The two Republican senators that we have, Lamar Alexander it, yeah. and Bob Corker, both voted for the bailout. Mm-hmm. So when you go to pull the lever, just remember if you had any kind of problem with uh, uh, nearly a billion dollars to begin with going to Wall Street bankers to fatten their accounts at Goldman Sachs and elsewhere, remember who did it. Yeah. And if you vote for people who do it, you are voting for the bankers. You're voting for the bankers to line their pockets. Well, and I, I think you can bring that, bring that home even more and just say that uh, despite 100 to 1 calls against the bailout, they still voted for the bailout. So I think that really calls into question their ability to listen to the people who elected them. And care about any other issue. Yes. Any other issue mm-hmm. whatsoever it is, whether yeah. you're for or against whatever. We obviously here at Future Quake uh, respect people's freedom to vote however they want. That's right. We would like to uh, bring this up. Uh, it's just for information's sake, just uh, to make sure you have all the information before you go in and make your decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing we'd like to do for information before we forget is that uh, we recently just discovered that there is a, uh, to, to be complete, we've talked about these other candidates, mm-hmm. to be complete, there is a candidate that is running for Senate uh, right out of Nashville here uh, on the Libertarian Party. Oh, cool. And his name is uh, Daniel Lewis. Uh, we're going to get to know him just in a little quick vignette here. He is uh, a gentleman that's a Sunday school teacher, Baptist mm-hmm. church, uh, right very active in his church. He teaches at a Christian school, uh, and well, he'll tell you about some of that. So uh, we're going to uh, share with you about an interview that we did. We really didn't have time for a full-blown uh, uh, interview, but just a little introduction, just so we make sure that you all are fully informed before you go into the booth. Uh, and he's up for uh, the, the, one of the Senate seats that's uh, available uh, mm-hmm. this year. So with no further ado, I think we will just go to him, and uh, then we'll come back and talk about some more some more news. So until then, here is our interview with uh, Daniel Lewis of the Libertarian Party running for Senate. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Future at the Future Quake Show with Tom Bionic. And we have a special guest with us for just a little uh, quick discussion we have here. As an aside, we have uh, Daniel Lewis. Uh, a gentleman who is currently running uh, for a Senate seat in Tennessee uh, with the Libertarian Party. And, uh, Mr. Lewis, I just want to tell you it's great to have you on the Future Quake show. Great to be on the show tonight. Well, it, it's, a, it's a privilege to have you on, and I just want to thank you for taking time out of your busy life to yeah. uh, participate in, in the, uh, the, the civil process here. 
in, in the election process and give an alternative to our listeners. I have to confess to you, I'm so sorry that we were late in uh, becoming more aware of your, your campaign, but I'm just glad we've, we found that right now and mm-hmm. we're able to at least introduce you to our listeners right better, before Election Day. Better late than never. That's right. Yeah. And so because our time is brief, I, I want to ask you really quickly, if you don't mind, to just introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, tell us a little bit about your background uh, and credentials. I know you're an active uh, practicing Christian, but just share with us a little bit about yourself. All right. My name is uh, Daniel Lewis, and I'm the Libertarian candidate for the United States Senate from Tennessee. I grew up in a Christian home. I currently attend a Southern Baptist church here in Nashville. And uh, actually, it's a lot of uh, my Christian upbringing that kind of uh, has leaned me towards the libertarian perspective of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've studied through the Bible and uh, various passages, I've basically come to the conclusion that what uh, God favors is very small, limited government. If you uh, even go back to Genesis, which of course is where everything in the Bible starts, uh, the basic governmental structure was actually the family. It's not until we get to... Uh, Genesis chapter 10 and 11 that we start seeing human government, and we actually see that it's not of a uh, godly origin, but rather it's of a satanic origin. And then, uh, of course, also later on in the uh, Old Testament, if you uh, go over and look at First uh, Samuel chapter 8, which is mm-hmm. when uh, the children of Israel ask God for a king, uh, Samuel basically in verses uh, 11 through 18 outlines for them all the problems that they're going to have by right. having the big government of mm-hmm. having a right. king. Right. You got to go to war. You're going to have high taxes, is what God said. Exactly. And in fact, if I understand what the Bible is implying, and we need to have you back to have a more detailed discussion about this, is that when we're stuck with earthly government until the King of Kings comes here and we have a righteous King, the best thing is to keep these earthly powers as small as possible to allow us to be able to uh, respond as exclusively to God as is possible on this earth. Uh, that's correct. Well, let's... and uh, of course, when our country was founded, uh, they. Uh, the founders of our country, they looked throughout history at various forms of government that had existed throughout history. And basically that was the conclusion that they came to also, was that a very limited form of government, especially mm-hmm. right. uh, mm-hmm. the national federal government, needed to be very limited, and that's basically what they set up in the Constitution. Well, we've got about a minute and a half here, so I'm going to list a few things that I understand on your website uh, that you support. Um, You you support minimal government and maximum freedom for people to choose, uh, self-determination, the right for parents to uh, teach their children as they see fit. Uh, Can you share with us some other uh, uh, quick things you want to share with us about uh, your fundamental positions that are particularly relevant now at this time in our government? Sure. Uh, Basically, to sum up, my uh, campaign, I favor reducing the size, scope, and power of government on every issue and oppose increasing the size, scope, or power of government on any issue. Okay. And uh, like you said, we don't really have much time to uh, talk about that. Right. I encourage your listeners to go to my website. It's www.getyourcountryback.com. And uh, on that website, they'll be able to read a very detailed explanation of how reducing the size and scope of power of government on every issue can uh, make things a lot better and also uh, greatly increase the freedom that we have in our country. Okay. And, and regarding the bailout bill that we've talked a lot on the show here 
uh, our two incumbent Republicans voted for the bailout bill against mm-hmm. the wishes overwhelmingly of the citizens. You take a different position on that, correct? Uh, that's correct. And uh, there's a lot, again, that we could say about the bailout bill. Basically, uh, first of all, it's uh, not one of the constitutional authorized functions of Congress right. to do that, so they shouldn't have done it to start with. Secondly, as a libertarian and as a Christian, I think it's morally wrong to uh, take property from one right. individual and redistribute it to right. another individual or group of mm. individuals, mm-hmm. and that's basically mm. what they were doing with the bailout. Right. Uh, also, well, economically, with the bailout, they're actually going to be just printing money to pay for the bailout, which right. is going to cause inflation. And I have right. uh, extensive materials on my website about our monetary system mm-hmm. and how we basically need to return to a uh, honest monetary mm-hmm. system. Well, Mr. Also, by the way, a biblical principle. That's right. Mr. Lewis, we have to go right now, but I want to let our listeners to know uh, your website, your link will be on the front of futurequake.com uh, coming up uh, this upcoming Friday from the date we're recording this, which will be the 26th, 24th, 24th of October. It'll be on the front. I, I, we list on there a few of your basic uh, beliefs and your link to go to it. You will be on the ballot with the Libertarian Party for Senate. You're giving an alternative for our listeners to vote there. I want to thank you for running, and I want to have you yeah. back for a more detailed discussion about why you believe what you do and uh, come back later and talk about that. Would that be all right? Yes, and actually I'll be listed as an independent candidate because of okay. access laws, but still we, people will find me on there, Daniel Lewis. We, cool. we understand. Thank Great. you so much, and thank you for your service for the Lord as well, too. Yeah. And we look forward to talking to you more about well, that. You're welcome. You have a good evening. Okay, yep. thank you. Okay, that was great. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Enjoyed talking with him, and uh, we've invited him to come back and uh, come back on our show. Yeah. So I'd like to have him here. You know, just talk about issues future. in general. Yeah. Issues in general. Interesting to see his take. We we have some news stories. Yes. Uh, would you like to start out with a news story? I will start out one. Okay. Uh, this one is quick. Lay it on us. <clears throat> here it is. It's in. Uh, it's from LEX 18, uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, the student. Uh, it's Clark County, and the headline is Student Arrested for Terroristic Threatening Says Incident a Misunderstanding. A George Rogers Clark High School junior arrested Tuesday for making terrorist threats told LEX 18 News Thursday that the writings that got him arrested are taken out of context. Uh, Poole told Lex 18, LEX 18 that the whole incident is a big misunderstanding. He claims that what his grandparents found in his journal and turned into the police was a short story he wrote for English class. Uh, in his own words, he says, My story is based on fiction, says Poole, who faces a second-degree felony terrorist threatening charge. It's a fake story. I made it up. I've been working on one of my short stories, and the short story they found was about zombies. Yes, it did say a high school, but it was about a high school overrun by zombies. Oh, my goodness. Now the terrorists are resorting to zombies? Is that what yes. you're telling me? you got to watch out for the zombie front. I was afraid that was going to happen. The, on the, terrorist, the terror front. I'm so glad they arrested him and got him away where he can't harm any of us yep. with his zombie stories or zombie plans for us. Yep. Uh, even so, police say the nature of the story makes it a felony. Anytime you make any threat or possess material involving a school or function, it's a felony in the state of Kentucky. Winchester Police Detective Stephen Cadill says. Um, Poole disputes that he was threatening anyone. It didn't mention nobody who lives in Clark County. It didn't mention George Rogers Clark High School. It didn't mention no principals or cops. Nothing. 
Half of the people at high school know me. They know I'm not that crazy, that stupid. On Thursday, a judge raised Poole's bond from one to $5,000 after prosecutors requested it, citing the seriousness of the charge. <laughs> this, is, this is ridiculous. It's weirder and weirder. Yeah. Poole is being held at the Clark County Detention Center. I guess if I'd say the motto of, of stories like that is, if they want to arrest you, they can drum up anything to arrest somebody if they want well, to. Well, you got to watch out, like you said earlier, you got to watch out the zombie front. Mm-hmm. From the from the terrorists, right? I mean, that's a very serious threat, you know. I'm surprised they haven't hauled you and me off. If they're going after ga- kids writing writing zombie well, stories, why aren't they picking us up? Sure. Well, um, look unimportant. The man- enemy may be low on ammo. Well, that's true. As we could pride ourselves in our unimportance. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't hear from uh, Doctor Future and Tom Bionic. Uh, one day for a few days in a row, you better check with WNO mm-hmm. or try to find out. You may want to use an assumed name, but mm-hmm. find out why we're not here. Yeah. Um, they, might, would... they might run reruns of us. If you actually hear them playing martial music, mm-hmm. like patriotic music during a half hour, that's always mm-hmm. a bad sign in history. Yeah. You might look at some maybe Germanic speeches from the 30s. Might yeah. replace us very soon. Well, they always played that patriotic martial music whenever there was a overthrow of a government like a, you know. Yeah. Revolution well, you know, or something like that. Well, you know the fact that the fact that the, in this bailout there was language that allowed the uh, the Secretary of the Treasury to buy treasuries with no judicial oversight, unchallengeable in a court of law, mm-hmm. certainly makes that sound like a overthrow of government. I guess that that takes care of our problems of getting bad judges and bad Supreme Court judges if we just basically wipe out the courts and don't yeah. allow oh, them. Yeah. Oh well. To yeah. Seek we don't redress. have to worry about we don't have to worry about ja- bad judges now because they you can't really rule on much. See, they balanced it. We got rid of that one branch of government, the judiciary, and we've replaced it with the Treasury Department. Well, as the powerful. Uh, to quote that movie, uh, uh, I guess it was the Alien movie. I can't remember the name of it. Well, I'll tell you, folks. Two out of three branches of government are working. And let me tell you, in my experience, that's not bad. <laughs> well, i got a story for you. Lay it on us. They're trying to just pick up our uh, spirits here a little bit. All right. Um, this is something that came from Wayne Madsen, who is a uh, – Wayne Madsen uh, Research and Reports mm-hmm. uh, is a gentleman who's an investigative journalist that's used by all the major uh, news networks and others. Mm-hmm. He he has a for-fee service where he gets this information out where they use on the major media. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's a report I was able to get my hands on. It says uh, WMR, or, or his group, has learned from knowledgeable Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA sources, that the Bush administration is putting the final touches on a plan that will see martial law declared in the United States with various scenarios anticipated as triggers. Great. The triggers include a continuing economic collapse with massive social unrest, mm-hmm. bank closures resulting in violence against financial institutions, and another fraudulent presidential election that would result in rioting in major cities and campuses around the country. In addition, the Army Corps of Engineers sources report that the assignment of the 3rd Infantry Division's 1st Brigade Combat Team, BCT, to the Northern Command's U.S. Army uh, North is to augment FEMA and federal law enforcement in the imposition of traffic controls, crowd control, curfews, enhanced border port security, and neighborhood patrols in the event of a national emergency being declared. The BCT was assigned uh, to duties in Iraq before being assigned to the Northern Command. On April 3, 2008, WMR reported on a highly classified document regarding the martial law scenario. MWR has learned from knowledgeable sources within the U.S. financial community 
that an alarming confidential and limited distribution document is circulating among senior members of Congress and their senior staff members that is warning of a bleak future for the United States mm. if it does not quickly get its financial house in order. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is among those who have reportedly read the document. The document is being called uh, the United States document because it reportedly states that if the uh, – excuse me, I, I missed something here. Uh, it reportedly states that if the United States defaults on loans and debt underwriting from China, Japan, and Russia, all of which are propping up the United States government mm -hmm. financially, and the United States unilaterally cancels the debts, America can expect a war – uh, that will have disastrous results for the United States and the world. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's see. The conflict, uh, uh, the other scenario is that the federal government will be forced to drastically raise taxes in order to pay off debts to foreign countries to the point that America's people will react with a popular revolution against the government. Wow. Very light and very airy. I did that just to try to pick us up a little bit. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we, we, we have so many unhappy stories. You might as well just really get something fluffy. Yeah, we need to get our song "I'm Happy" playing back yeah. again for stuff like that. Now, well, that, that gentleman actually is well respected. He's not just some nutcase not just on the internet. Guy. No, 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 no. Yeah, He's I think I've heard his name. They, they use his uh, the major news media use him as sort of a um, almost like a scout. He goes out. He's been in business for a long time, getting information, mm. and then they buy for his services to use his independent reports. Well, that would so just just so I'm clear, what they're saying is that is that they're Wayne Madsen is saying that there's a uh, a secret document floating around saying that we're going to go into martial law. and well, It sounded like they were like maybe there's preparations. Yeah. There's a very strong possibility that it could very well happen mm -hmm. and that they're making preparations yeah. for if that happens. Well, folks, if you see that coming, you know, you might think about, uh, you know, like listening to Melissa Riley stocking up on some food. Right. You know. Uh, the future uh, household is going to start making this more of a priority. Yeah. You know, I, I hate to be a hypocrite and be a doctor future and not be prepared for our collective future. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you do have newspaper grill. We have a newspaper grill. Yeah. I recommend that to everybody. Yeah. Burns using only newspaper. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I might recommend uh, in studying some of this stuff, uh, one of our, our past guests, uh, Harold Williams, uh, actually mm -hmm. mentioned that 18% um, pepper spray is not a bad idea in a mm -hmm. situation where there's martial law. To season your food? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if you like it hot, that's the way yeah, to go. Yeah, right. 18% um, pepper spray. In a situation where there's martial law, firearms are prohibited. Right. So uh, home protection and stuff, you have to look at it a little bit differently. 18% uh, pepper spray is for use on bears. So oh. you hose somebody down with that, and they're not going anywhere. Huh. And you shoot it inside a tank, you know, because we have these militarized police. Well, yeah, groups. you know, you, you shoot it down the barrel, and it, you know, oh, it's okay. like... Bugs Bunny. Makes sense to yeah, me. Yeah, you know, putting your finger in the gun and the gun explodes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Usually I just put daisies down the gun barrels. Yeah, I'm sure you do. That's what I did down at the uh, protest down at yeah, the Yeah, I was going to uh, say, back debate. when you were at, at what was it, Wright-Patterson? I take, yeah, yeah. take them out of my hair and stick them down the yes. gun barrel. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we don't mean to make light of it. This is, uh, this is serious stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> the uh, I, I imagine you've probably not heard that story I just read on the mainstream news media. You wouldn't think so, no. Like most of the stuff we report here. Yeah. Uh, and you have a right to ask why. Why yeah. are they not reporting on these kind of things? I, I was talking to Mrs. Future tonight about um, uh, what would happen if, uh, for example, I, I heard that uh, uh, McCain is coming back in the key battleground states in mm. Florida, in Ohio. Hmm. And if he were to eke out by like a whisker, a wind, mm -hmm. that would be the third one in the row that they would think a Republican did under 
questionable circumstances. Well, and with all the supporters for Obama, how much they have just totally, in you know, yeah, well, put himself in him. What do you think's going to happen in the streets? Well, gosh, as Mark Sten uh, reported, and I think you've seen, there's a significant, well, not significant, but there are people who are starting to say things like Obama might be the next Messiah. Right. And there are votive candles with Obama on it, you know, mm-hmm. sort of engulfed in light and. Uh, it's very weird. Yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. Things are only going to get more and more challenging in the days mm-hmm. ahead. We've probably got about two two to three minutes at most. You got I, something quick I to think share? yours is more important. All right. Well, about the uh, vaccine makers? Yes. I'm not going to be able to get to all this. So I'm going to keep right, it on our time. Just blast it. Uh, well, before we get to that, we need to go anyway to uh, our friend David Cox. Uh, he has another commentary for us. Um, we're still getting the audio kinks worked out with him. That We have some audio issues here, but you can hear it. The content of what, what he has to say is most important and is particularly pertinent uh, right here before Election Day. So uh, before we move on, I want to introduce uh, Dave Cox from the Cox Commentary, or Cox Chronicles, and then we'll be right back to finish up on Future Quick. The current financial troubles that plague the world today are a testament to the polar disparity between the kingdom of God and that of man. And while First Timothy 6.10 tells us that the love of money is the root of all evil, money itself is not the problem, but man's lusts and compulsive need to create systems of control. Knowing what lay in the hearts of men, God gave the Israelites laws governing financial practices, as can be seen in Exodus 22.25, the book of Leviticus, and elsewhere, to ensure that financial dealings did not lead to usury and ultimately bondage. Just as Israel sought a king in place of God in Samuel 8.7, so do men still ultimately wish to replace the law of God with the systems created by men. It should be no surprise, then, when these systems come crumbling down. As a new financial system is put in place by the present kings of this earth, an opportunity will be open for the followers of Jesus to help feed those less fortunate and show kindness and mercy while praising the name of God. Now is the opportunity to show what Christianity is all about, as it is described in James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father, is this, to visit the fatherless and windows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Okay, thank you for bearing with me on that. Uh, this is a uh, story, uh, Emergency Declarations for Vaccine Makers. Uh, sure, the economy is causing the crisis, but what about anthrax or smallpox? In a little notice move, federal officials this month have declared a series of public health emergencies related to potential weapons of biological terror. On October 1st, Health and Human Services Secretary Mike Levitt declared an anthrax uh, public health emergency. On October 10th, he declared health emergencies for smallpox, radiation sickness from the detonation of a nuclear vice, and poisoning from botulinum toxins, the active ingredient of Botox. No clear evidence that terrorists have managed to weaponize the anthrax or stolen large caches of Botox from cosmetic surgeons. But by declaring these health emergencies, HHS has granted manufacturers of anti-terrorism drugs and vaccines and others involved with products uh, protection from lawsuits if the drugs were to cause unfortunate side effects. In the past, drug companies have shied away from vaccine development because of low profit margins and legal risk. The actions of HHS are a necessary reassurance to persuade companies to make the drugs and doctors and other providers to administer them, federal officials and some terrorist experts say. But consumer advocates uh, see it as a giveaway to the drug industry that strips the public of legal protections. Um, I may have a lot more to share with on one of our other news about this. I'm going to hang mm. on to this story because yeah. there's some details that confirm this. Mm. The bottom line is what our government has done is, is it's in effect scaring the public by making these announcements to protect 
people in industry to make this stuff. And if they have stuff that has nasty stuff in it, which most of the time the vaccines do, they've been putting mercury in them, putting aborted baby parts. Yeah, in well, these that, things. we actually covered that here on Future Quake. And so if they, if you take it and you get really, really ill, the government has eliminated your ability to get any kind of compensation wow. for you or your family or children or whoever has been injured. Sounds like life. fascism. Well, what they're arguing is that, oh, well, they won't make them if we don't have these protections. You know, so they're not putting like a a limit on, on you know, damages or anything like that. They're just saying you're completely scot-free without any kind of oversight at all. Wow. It's crazy days. And we're out of time. Yeah, uh, let's get great. Let's get uh, our, our friend in here. So, mm-hmm. uh, Merv, where are you? Come in and tell our listeners how they yeah. can find out more about Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the shows, topics, or guests, or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're down to about 10 seconds or so. Well, uh, folks, it was great to have you here. This was a pretty exciting day, pretty mm-hmm. exciting Friday. Um, take care, and we'll see you again here on Future Quake. And vote, pray in the next few days about your vote. Mm-hmm. Pray, think about it. Don't be pressured by anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but vote and go on and do your citizen's duty. And uh, when whatever the outcome is, we'll be here and we'll figure out how to survive the future together. So, mm-hmm. till then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Sayonara. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 quake.